the 10-year anniversary of the release of the first of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring. 10 years. And I remember 10 years ago when this came out and the, the, the movie was kind of gaining, the, the movie and its subsequent marketing monster was gaining momentum through late 2001 and 2002. And I was working with um, a youth group across town, about 60 or 70 high schoolers. And inevitably the question came up with them, you know, what, what, I heard them, what, what, what character are you? Who, who are you? Who do you identify with in the story? And when you're working with teenagers, you can't escape that, that question. Like, there's only so many times you can say, hey, I'm going to go get some more pizzas. Um, you get sucked into that question. And so, um, you know, this was a no-brainer for me. It really wasn't. Um, it, short, uh, hates to run, likes to eat and drink. Um, you, want, you want him on your team when it's time to throw down and has great facial hair. I'm none other than Gimli the Dwarf, I admit it. <laughs> and I own my dwarfness, I do. Um, I like Gimli. He's my buddy. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I remember having that conversation with them and enjoying the laughs that, oh, who are you? And, and you know, making fun of some of them because they identified with some other character that really wasn't them. Um, you know, when you're doing that, it's okay with a movie. But when we come to the scriptures, uh, it's imperative that we identify ourselves with the right person in the story. We've got lots of characters in this story this morning. And if we don't identify ourselves with the right one, we'll miss the whole point. So with that in mind, that we need to identify ourselves with the right person, let's read the text of Scripture, 1 Kings 18, 20 through 40. I'll read the, read the Scripture, then I'll pray, and then, as my late grandfather would say, we'll get after it. So 1 Kings 18, this is God's holy word. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said... How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. 
And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we tremble at its threshold. We ask that you would work in us as only you can. We ask, Father, that we would be aware of your great care. We ask, Jesus, that we would be, be aware of your incomparable worth, and we ask, Spirit, that you would work in our hearts, you would change us that we would smash our idols and we would turn to the one living and true God. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Um, As most um, elementary age boys are when I was that age, I was convinced that I had the the meanest parents in the world, the most strict parents in the world, um, the most unreasonable parents in the world. And one of my exhibits for that was that they would never let me eat Lucky Charms cereal for breakfast. Now, for those of you who aren't aware of Lucky Charms, it's pretty much the greatest tasting cereal ever made. It's amazing. But they would never let me have it for for breakfast. Um, And so I took a trip down memory lane and went to the grocery store aisle, the cereal aisle in the grocery store. And um, first uh, first thing I noticed was, and this would never happen with any of our children here, but if a child is going to have a meltdown in the grocery store, it's going to be in the cereal aisle. Um, I'm fairly certain they filmed a couple of scenes from The Exorcist in the cereal aisle. That's how bad it was. So I went over to, to the box of Lucky Charms, and I didn't have a hard time finding it because this big red box just radiates as if it had an external power source, which may explain why it costs so much. So I picked it up, and uh, the first thing you notice on the top is this nutritional advertisement about whole grains and vitamins and mir- minerals and, and I turned it on its side to the nutritional information on the side. And um, I didn't know whether I was reading a label or a box of Crayola crayons with all the colors in it. Uh, so between the colors and the refined starches and the sugar, um, this, basically, this, this cereal has no nutritional value in it whatsoever. I'm pretty convinced the only worst thing you could put in your mouth would be rat poison. Um, it's really not very good for you at all. But then I turned it again, and and I saw the big giant letters, uh, the big giant graphics for the supposed nutritional information. I'm thinking, who are these guys kidding? Like, what are they thinking? You put this on the label and this on the top, and those two don't add up. If if you're trying to sell me on this cereal as a nutritional staple, um, you've lied to me. Um, It's not right. And, And if I were to be 
If I were to believe that message and be deceived, it, it would be my fault, one. But I, I would be trading, I would be thinking, oh, I'm getting a nutritional cereal, when in actuality, all I'm getting is uh, a ride on the fast track to type 2 diabetes. Um, th- this isn't a good thing. Um, idolatry is the same way. It promises us one thing, but it, and it, and it, it says it can deliver on things, but it doesn't. In the end, we just get death and deception. And um, a pastor in our denomination writes in one of his books entitled Counterfeit Gods, and he defines idolatry. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And in our story today, in 1 Kings 18, we have a group of people who have bought into the lie of idolatry. Specifically the lie that, uh, that the idol Baal has promised them. So we have two things. We have the setting of idolatry and we have the solution to idolatry. Uh, what's the setting of idolatry? Well, we, there's a political setting going on. You notice that in the very first verse, this guy Ahab is, uh, is mentioned. And it's not the guy who hunts whales. It's the king of Israel at this time. And we find out a little bit about him in 1 Kings 16 when he comes to power that um, he, he, he did a couple of bad things. One, he took a wife from a foreign nation, which he wasn't supposed to do as king in Israel. Um, he also introduced the worship of Baal and Asherah to the people of Israel. Once again, another no-no. In fact, uh, 1 Kings 16 sums up his reign this way. He did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So what goes on this guy's tombstone pretty much is worst king ever. He's the most wicked king ever. He provokes the Lord. He leads his people astray. Very bad king. He marries a, a wife, a foreign wife named Jezebel. What do we know about her? Well, she's the daughter of the king of Sidon. But, you know, the name of Jezebel, the name Judas has become synonymous with, with betrayal and a traitor. The name Jezebel is synonymous with arrogant, brash immorality. This lady really sets a precedent and sets a standard, um, shall we say, very low for, for, for how women should act. Um, later on in 1 Kings, we learn that she plots to murder somebody. Not a nice lady. Um, so, and also we have this, this god Baal. Who is this god Baal? Um, in ancient Near Eastern mythology, he was responsible for the rain and fertility. Um, very important to these people. So basically what we have is this political and religious mess because in this day they're, they're, they're linked. Religion and politics are mixed here. So we have this political mess. Um, what do we know about um, the physical setting? Well, if you rewind to 1 Kings chapter 17, you'll find out that it hasn't rained for three years. Now to us, that may be great. You know, you don't have to worry about messing up your hair. You don't have to worry about crazy Greenville drivers being even more crazy because it's raining. No rain for three years. But to these people, that was a problem because this is not an experience-based society. This is not an information-based society. This is not even an industrial society. This is a farming-based society. And for any farm, any kind of farming whatsoever, rain is your lifeblood. Rain is the lifeblood of your economy, of your welfare, of, of your family. And if there's no rain, there's no crops... Uh, there's nothing to feed the cattle. Um, this is how the whole economy... Imagine it this way. Imagine if we went for three years without electricity. Now, just as we go through the heat of the summer, imagine no electricity. You know, sleeping in 90-degree weather is not the most comfortable thing you can do. Um, but, you know, imagine even for our entertainment, no, no television, no DVR, 
no laptop, no iPad, no iPod, um, no Twitter, no Facebook, no Angry Birds or Words with Friends. Does this ring a bell? Um, none of this, because without electricity, we can't do that. We basically would be thrown back into the Stone Age, and, and a lot of us would be saying, I'm bored. So, so this is what the people are dealing with. They're dealing with a political and religious mess. Their economy has come to a halt. They're having a really, a really bad day economically. So what's the big deal here? Why do these people, why are they worshiping Baal, the rain and fertility god? Because fer- fertility was, was important to them. They needed fertile fields, so they had a lot of crops, a lot of cattle, because back then, um, a measurement of wealth was not a piece of green paper, but it was hard assets such as crops and cattle. And that's how you traded, and that's how you expressed your wealth. Um, they also needed fertile females. Um, if you have a big farm, you need a lot of hands for it. Um, plus, the, um, the infant mortality rate is fairly high, so you need to have a lot of kids. In case a few die, you still have a, a few left. And back in this time, there was no 401k structure. So your kids were your 401k. So when you got old and you couldn't work the farm, hopefully you had a lot of kids to take care of your farm. Um, but, but it's more than that. It's not just crops and cattle and kids. And it's, it's, it's an expression of status. It's an expression of wealth. It's an expression of image. That these folks aren't just worshiping a god for worshiping a god's sake. They're after some pretty important stuff. They're after security, wealth, status, image, and identity. Does that sound familiar? In fact, I think it is very familiar to us. We're not all different from these people. Right, we might have some crazy name God and do these crazy rituals and, and dance around a, a, um, a false God, a physical image of a false God, but we're after the same things. We're after status and image and identity. Uh, last week... Uh, kind of the story that dominated the sports headlines was the resignation of the head football coach at The Ohio State University, um, the vest, Jim Tressel. And uh, some of his players were doing some, some stuff that was out of sorts with NCAA um, regulations. And he kind of knew about it and sort of lied and covered up, and so he had to resign. But um, the Reverend Jonathan Wire, he writes an article about this in the Huffington Post, Uh, He is a campus minister for a different Presbyterian denomination at The Ohio State University, and he writes this about Trestle. Truth be told, none of us thought we would be here. We thought Trestle was incorruptible, a paragon of moral virtues who never bowed to the pressure of winning a football game at the expense of moral fortitude. This is especially true among the Christians in the Buckeye State. Trestle started Bible studies, wrote books about character values, and preached integrity in all things. He spoke at Christian rallies, talked about the importance of his faith and how much it influenced his life. The trestle icon has now become tarnished beyond repair. Christians are left stunned because another one of our idols has fallen flat on his human face. The idolization of trestle and his downfall tells us a gruesome story about American Christianity. There's an old parable that what we do in private is a true measure of our character. I always thought this parable is fairly useless. It's a morality test that every one of us would fail. I think a better test of our character and what we value comes when we examine our heroes and idols. Who we spend the most time talking about and holding up standards for our lives tells much more about who we are as a people. The Trestle debacle shows how much American Christians are in love with fame because we we think it gives us some sort of credibility. 
we think if someone famous bows their name to Christ, it automatically gives Jesus badly needed street cred. If Snooki ever came to Christ, we would rush her out on talk shows, write books, and speak at Christian events that focus on the evils of a party lifestyle. It's a sick and twisted view of how we are in American Christianity. It shows us that we value fame, credibility, and even more moral values than we value Christ. We value our image more than we value the lives of people. Instead of taking Paul's words to heart about lifting up Christ, we lift up golden calves as our God and goddesses. And then when the idol is crushed, we rush up to kick it, bash it, and spit on it because it didn't fulfill us. We never stopped to think it was us who created the idol in the first place. He goes on to write, I hate what Tressel did. I hate that he lied, but even more, I hate that I put him in a position to break my heart so much. He should never have been there in the first place. Tressel's just a guy, a good football coach, who messed up for a variety of reasons. He should never have been my idol, and it's not fair to blame him for my own sin, the sin of making an idol in my own life. And I read that, and I thought, ouch, that guy's exactly right. We are pros at making idols out of stuff. Parents, children are good. And, and by the way, we, we only make idols out of good things. Can I stop and say, we only make idols out of No one gets up and says in the morning, hey, I'd really like to um, have alcohol poisoning and cirrhosis of the liver and lose my job and lose my family and lose my kids and, and end up um, homeless somewhere because I abused alcohol. Nobody gets up and says, hey, that's what I want to do today. But we do say, you know, I really could use some comfort and some release, so I'll find it at the bottom of a bottle. And parents, maybe the reason that you're exhausted is because you're running your child from activity to activity to activity, and and maybe the reason you're doing that is not necessarily because for the good of your child, but for the good of your identity. Maybe you're finding your identity there. And I know, I, I know I'm going to get the, Jason, you're not married, you don't have kids, you'll understand one day when you have kids. No, no, I understand the day because I have the same wicked heart. And I just find my idols in different places than, than children. Singles, maybe we have our image bound up in a relationship. Maybe that's why we bow to the cultural pressure to treat other singles like objects and not like persons created in the image of God. And maybe that's the reason we treat dating as entertainment or we're afraid of commitment because our image is bound up in a relationship. Children, this summer is still young, but already you have found a way to drive your parents crazy. You have your parents conversing with each other. Now, if I choke my child out, is it misdemeanor assault or or felony criminal assault? I can't remember. Why? Because when they tell you to do something, there's always a story and there's always a back top and a back talk and, and you've always got to find a way to pick a fight with your siblings. Why? Because even at this young age, you've learned that the idol of authority and power is a sweet thing to be pursued and it's caught you in its grasp. Longtime churchgoer, you're angry at God because you've played by the rules, but you didn't get that raise and you didn't get that relationship to work out and things aren't working out like you think they should because you've played by the rules and you're angry at God because this, is, this isn't what you signed up for and it's revealing that you're, the idol that you worship is God's stuff and not really God himself. We've bought, into, we've bought into idolatry 
We're just like these people in here, right? We're, these people try to find their status and their worth and identity in crops and, and getting a, a God to, manip, to, uh, getting to trying to manipulate a God so he'll reign and so they'll have stuff so they can brag and feel validated. And we're the exact same way. We are the exact same way. In case you're still having trouble um, finding out what your idols are, um, Christian counselor David Pallison writes this in a book, Seeing with New Eyes, Counseling the Human Condition Through the Lens of Scripture, and just a couple of diagnostic questions. What do I worry about most? What do I use to comfort myself when things go bad or difficult? What do I do to cope? What are my release valves? What do I do to feel better? What preoccupies me? What do I daydream about? What do I lead with in conversations? Early on, what do I want to make sure that people know about me? What prayer unanswered would make me seriously think about turning away from God? What do I really want and expect out of life? What would really make me happy? See, whether we bought it to Christianity or are hostile to it or we're just checking it out, we've all got the same problem. We're all pros at this, like our father Adam and our mother Eve. We'll be the arbiters of what is right and wrong, and we'll make that right and wrong happen if we have to kill ourselves doing it and trying it. That's what we'll do. So that, that, there's the setting for idolatry. What, what's the solution to this condition that we all have? Well, first of all, we've got to see the heinous deceitfulness of these idols. Um, you notice that th- the text describes these people as raving, dancing around, running around for hours, cutting themselves as their custom, trying to manipulate God. They're, they're hurting themselves. They're, these people, at the end of the day, they're cutting, they're dancing, they're hoping, and their God has let them down. Did you notice that in verse 26? There was no voice and no one answered. And again in verse 29, no one answered, no voice, no one paid attention. When the chips are down and they need their God to come through for them, he lets them down. He leaves them high and dry, literally high and dry. No rain, high and dry. They get nothing from this God except embarrassment and foolishness. That's all they get from him. He took their best, but he left them with their worst. Um, this is vividly illustrated for us by uh, Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias in his book, Can Man Live Without God? He talks about Malcolm Muggeridge, who is a journalist. And Malcolm Muggeridge was spending some time in India, and he, and he recounts this. Working as a journalist in India, Muggeridge left his residence one evening to go by a near, to a nearby river for a swim. As he entered the water across the river, he saw an Indian woman from the nearby village who had come to have her bath. Muggeridge impulsively felt the allurement of the moment, and temptation stormed his mind. He had lived with this kind of struggle for years, but had somehow fought it off in honor of his commitment to his wife, Kitty. On this occasion, however, he wondered if he could cross the line of marital fidelity. He struggled just for a moment and then swam furiously toward the woman, literally trying to outdistance his conscience. His mind fed him the fantasy that stolen waters would be sweet, and he swam the harder for it. Now he was just two or three feet away from her, and as he emerged from the water, any emotion that may have gripped him paled into insignificance when compared with the devastation that shattered him as he looked at her. She was old and hideous, and her skin was wrinkled, and worst of all, she was a leper. The creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. The experience left Muggeridge trembling. And muttering under his breath, what a dirty, lecherous woman. 
But then the rude shock of it dawned on him. It was not the woman who was lecherous. It was his own heart. Our own hearts are this way. And each time we buy into idolatry, the same dirty lecherousness will face us. We think we're going for an escapade and all we get is leprosy. In fact, we're so deceived by our idolatry that we need other people to to point it out for us. And this was brought home to me most vividly in these past few months. I remember the beginning of February, um, I sent an email to the Hambies. I'm in their community group and I run a lot of stuff by them. So I I sent it to them and the reply came back. And it's almost as if the reply that the Apostle Paul came down and scooted over the Hambies said, why don't you let me handle this one? I'll, I'll take care of it. Like, hmm, the Apostle Paul at gmail.com. I didn't know he had an email address like that. But it was that gospel-filled and that Jesus-saturated and that, that refreshing. However, that week I was angry at everything that moved. Angry at coworkers, angry at friends, angry at sports teams. You name it, I was angry at it. And I read the email, the response, and at first I thought, hmm, they're exactly right. This is what I need to hear. But I got angry at it and I checked it and I deleted it. And I, and I never delete emails from the Hambies. Those things are golden. So I deleted it, and uh, a couple days later we had community group, and I, and I confessed my anger to them, and we had a, actually had a good laugh about it. And um, three or four days later, I'm in my kitchen in a happy mood, like best mood of the week because I'm cooking bacon, and I'm serious. <laughs> the best antidepressant ever. And one of my roomies comes up to me, and he says, I don't know how to say this, so I'm just going to say this. And he launches into something, and it's almost verbatim, word for word, what the Hamby said in their email. Almost verbatim. It was, it was uncanny. And uh, he caught me off guard. That was good planning on his part. He caught me when I was in a good mood. But he was exactly right, just like the Hambies were exactly right, that, that this situation, I was angry because I was trying to control the situation, and I couldn't control the situation. And even fast forward to, my, to this whole situation with my ear and surgery, and you can't control things because... You're not allowed to work out. You can't make any strenuous moves. And you've got to be careful that your blood pressure doesn't go up. And you've got to be careful where you're sitting in the restaurant because you have a good ear towards the conversation. And just so much stuff over the last four months. For those of us who are type A, maybe you identify this with us more. Being in control, we, we like it. And being in control of things is a good thing. But like all other idols, when we make it the ultimate thing, it becomes deadly. And we need community. We need people to tell us this. And the scriptures mention the foolishness of idols. Psalm 96, all the gods of, peop- of the peoples are worthless idols. Jeremiah 10 even says, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. And we have worked ourselves to death going after our idols and seeking to win their love and their affection and trying to get them to do stuff for us. The people in this story are sweaty, they're foolish, they're disappointed, they're exhausted, they're crusty from the dried blood. And we're the same way. Our idols have taken the best from us and left us with nothing but embarrassment, disappointment, and the withering of our souls. So what is the cure here? What is the blessed cure? And it's only cured by Jesus. I grew up in the church, and I heard this story several times, and I 
I remember this story as a boy in Sunday school, and we, we had flannel graph, and you don't know what flannel graph is, to throw a piece of flannel over like a cardboard or a, or a poster board, and they have these characters they put up, and they have this weird adhesive on the back. It's not Velcro, but it's not glue. I don't know what it is, but they stay up. And the same guy that's Elijah is the same guy that's Noah, is the same guy that's Moses. You can use them over and over again. Brilliant. Teacher's best friend. This day I remember when this story came, there's a ball of fire up there. Yes, ball of fire, iced animal cookies. That's a great day for an eight-year-old. Great day. But, but I remember that this, when this story is usually told or preached, it's usually ended up in this way. We need to be bold like Elijah. We, we need to stand up to sinners like Elijah did. Now, don't get me wrong, we do. But that's not the end of the story. The other way I heard it, heard it ended was... Um, can you pray? Can you pray like Elijah? If you needed to call down fire from heaven, could you pray like Elijah? And I'm thinking, who are you kidding? No way can I do that. You know, because when I pray, 15 seconds into my prayer, it's, hmm, I wonder if they're going to have an NFL season this year. I'm kind of in the mood for some hot wings. If I call her up and ask her out, would she say yes? I don't know. I wonder if all the Steelers draft picks are going to make their team. I think this restaurant has the wing special. You really need to ask her out. Oh, wait, I'm trying to pray. In fact, I've, I've never met a Christian who said, you walk in, hey, how's your prayer life? Oh, that's great. Just, just amazing. Never, never been better. In fact, I don't need to improve. Nobody says that. The end of the story is not, you need to be bold like Elijah, although we need boldness. The end of the story is not, you need to pray, although I think we could all agree we can pray more and we can pray better. The amazing thing about this story is that it doesn't end here, but it points to a bigger story. The most amazing thing about this story is not that fire falls from heaven and consumes a soaking wet stack of stones and wood and flesh and dirt and water. No. The most amazing thing about this story is that fire falls from heaven and consumes a soaking wet stack of stones and wood and flesh and dirt and water instead of consuming the people of God. Look in verse 38. This is how 38 should read. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed all the people, period, game over. And really the only thing we should have left is a big piece of charred earth with, with little, little puffs of smoke coming up and maybe some crickets a few minutes later. That's what we should have. But the scriptures tell us that this is not what happened, that the fire of the Lord falls and consumes the burnt offering. And this is huge. This is huge. The scriptures tell us that this story doesn't end with itself, but it ends by pointing us to a day when the perfect prophet of God at the end of a perfect life would ascend another hill, the hill of Calvary, and would would strap himself upon the altar of the cross and would call down upon himself the full, furious, fiery wrath of the Father so that there's no more sacrifice and there's no more fire. It has been taken. Did you know... Did you notice in this story, the, the story doesn't say, and when all the people saw Elijah's boldness, they fell down and worshiped God. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say when they heard Elijah's great prayer and they were amazed at his prayer life, they fell down and worshiped God. No. What does it say? It says when the people saw it, the consummation and, and the utter oblivion of the altar and the sacrifice, and it's gone. 
They fell down on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. This is the great transaction that the Scriptures point us to. Jesus Himself says this in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what the antidote to our idols is? It's not for us to work harder. It's for us to have our affections grabbed and the attention of our heart rested in one Jesus Christ who took the wrath of the Father for us and was consumed for us. No idol is going to do that for us. In this story, there's, there's no more sacrifice. There's no more fire. There's not a second ball of fire that comes down from heaven. No, the, the, the reason that we can't say, we're not Elijah in this story. We are the people of God in this story. And we need someone to be consumed for us. We need a substitute, and that substitute is Jesus Jesus is the real and better Israel. He worships God for Israel and as Israel was meant to do because He has come in the human flesh. And now He worships corporately for us, His church. Jesus is the real and better prophet Elijah. Whereas Elijah's words can't change His hearers, Jesus' words are His deed. Only He has the power to transform hearts. Jesus is the real and better sacrifice He is the perfect bull that fully consumes the wrath of God for his people once for all time. Jesus is the real and better king. He marries a corrupt bride, but is not corrupted by her. But he willingly takes her corruption on him and clothes his bride with his righteousness so that she is without spot and she is without wrinkle or any such thing. He conquers all his enemies and their enemies and leads them in well-worn paths of righteousness. And dare I say, Jesus is the real and better green villain. Jesus knows who he is and takes care of his father's children, those who he is not ashamed to call his brothers and sisters, and offers them the greatest possible connection they could have Life in the Father's house as his brothers and sisters. And instead of being too busy and needling out his schedule to the margins, he stops and works with the wretched, the poor, the blind, and naked. And he is perfectly about his Father's business. My friend, we all, we all have idols. All of us do, and we all worship at them. And for them to be smashed and crushed, we need our hearts to be captured by a greater affection. Jesus Christ, our Lord. A French writer and aviator, Antoine de Saint-Azupuis, said and wrote this, If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. An idol will take our best and will leave us with our worst. But Jesus takes our worst and leaves us with his best. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And even though your word presses heavy on our soul, because we're idolaters, Lord, we confess it. And even as some of this has been pointed out, we get angry with it. Because people speak the truth to us. But we pray, Father, that you would send people into our lives to speak this truth to us. That, Father, you would help us to see the worthlessness of our idols. That created things cannot satisfy us. And that they will lie to us. And help us to be arrested, have our attention arrested by the beauty and magnificence and unique worth of Jesus Christ, our one Lord and Savior, and the one true lover of our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As uh, Mark Bacher comes to administer communion for us, um, uh, hymn writer Joseph Hart wrote in the mid-1700s, he wrote a hymn called, I Will Arise and Go to Jesus. And the last verse says, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. And this morning, we have a great charm. His body broken for us and his blood spilled for us. Mark.